Hello and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. It's our first show back since the election. And oh man, I think you'll be able to tell once you hear it. The Skewer is a live satirical news review every month on the first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. We got op-eds, we got debates. It's fun. It's funny. I think you're going to like it. Uh, This particular edition of the skewer was recorded on wednesday december 7th 2016 do enjoy Welcome to the skewer! Hooray! My name is Tom Harris and I'm going to be your host. Thank you all for coming out on this day, this hell day, cold, very bad, and really emblematic of all that's gone on in the last month. We took a month off last month because of the World Series, thinking, you know, come back post-election, have a great time. No. But yeah, so we got a, a great night of op-eds and uh, debate for you. Some, some, some delightful political satire. You're going to love it. And I'm going to start off by reading these pages. So before anything else, before I get into this, uh, I just want to get a round of applause for you guys, for my good personal friend, Russia, for finally winning the Cold War. Yes! Russia! I knew you had it in your buddy. I counted you out for too long, but you came back and proved me. <sighs> anyway, for, for real though, when I remember when this month started, I was totally going to myself, I was saying every day, you know what I really like is a second 9-11, but this time, way more stupid and way more preventable. Yes. <laughs> and I'd also like the damage and body count, not to just all be at once in one day, how gauche. <laughs> no. I want to spread that shit out yeah. real slow for like 12 years. Mm. And did we ever get it? If I had told you last year that the Cubs would win the World Series and that we would have all forgotten about it a week later, <laughs> you'd think I was crazy. But then again, November 2016 is something that I don't think anybody wanted to see coming. Just to sum up, remind you all, we elected a racist, rapist, Nazi-sympathizing, illiterate, kleptocratic, popular vote-losing game show host, who in this month alone has demonstrated that he will exploit the office of the presidency to personally enrich himself. He brazenly flaunts his conflicts of interest that the uh, now omnipotent Republican Party will do nothing to stop, because why wouldn't they? He has provided corporations with step-by-step instructions on how to extort the American taxpayer with his fucking dumbass deal with Carrier Air Conditioner. He's announced his intention to suppress democracy and criminalize dissent. And he has jeopardized alliances between the world's most populous and politically important countries, armed only with a Twitter account and our unsecured goddamn call-you-up-ring-a-ding phone line. He's not even president yet! We haven't seen day one. I remind you of all this because unless you are looking very hard, the media will not tell you about it. 
instead of being like, oh, hey guys, uh, so there's a lot of fascist language and anti-Semitism in the new administration, and history tells us that fascists act pretty much exactly like that, and um, if unchecked, we're going to be ruined. Yeah, instead of that, our media is tripping over themselves to write duke-sucking profile pieces. Someone give me more about the sexy Nazis, the quirky conservative millennials, whose dapper wardrobes make you want to give them a little smooch. One of those sexy Nazis had a rally recently where the crowd was doing Nazi salutes all night, where at the end he yelled out, Hail Victory, which is a phrase that in English and without any historical context already sounds super fucking scary. <laughs> but it's going to get way worse once you hear it translated into German. Sieg Heil. Yeah, they said that. And even if the media did step up, it wouldn't matter. His base has been indoctrinated beyond the point of recovery via fake news, otherwise known as propaganda. <laughs> Still also known as lying, which spread across Facebook like a cancer. And of course, the greasy human smear that is Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg bitched out and claimed that propaganda on Facebook had no effect on the election at all. Although we shouldn't be surprised to hear a weaselly non-answer from the man who invented the interested button on Facebook events. <laughs> Guys, fuck the interested button. No one who ain't interested is here tonight. Let me prove it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tyler Snodgrass, you here? No? With all that interest and you didn't come? It, well, it went away. I'm just going to do it from memory. Pretend that I had them here. Uh, Nick Enquist, you here? You here, my bud? Did you come? No? Crazy. I think I've proved my point. Also, I don't have them up anymore. You get it. You got the bit. The bit worked. You guys... I was so, so, so ready for this to be the month where I celebrated that I wouldn't have to talk about Donald Trump anymore. The most boring fucking human being on the planet. And I know what you're thinking, Tom, Trump's this crazy loose cannon. How could he be boring? I'll tell you how to make Donald Trump boring. You realize this truth. He is literally a baby. An infant. Just any baby you've ever met. Go back and look at his actions through that lens, and it'll hit every single time. Think of a situation Donald Trump was in. Ask yourself, what would a baby do? That is exactly what Donald Trump did. Someone says a mean thing about a baby, what, a, what would a baby do? A baby would cry, yeah? See, Donald Trump tweeting multiple times about how bad SNL is after they made fun of him. Uh, baby, someone, you see a treat, you know? In Donald Trump's case, the treat would be a, a chance to make money and or insult Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, what would a baby do? A baby's going to go out and try to grab that treat, no matter what circumstances might make doing so a bad fucking idea. See Trump calling Taiwan to tell them how great they are so he can get another hotel built, despite the massive diplomatic fuck-up with China that caused. Imagine someone scolded a baby for being a naughty little boy. What's a baby going to do? baby's going to blame someone else. The baby is aged up in this part of the analogy so that it can talk. <laughs> but it's still a baby. See, Donald Trump blames Taiwan because, you see, they called him. So really, it's their fault. Nothing Trump has done since I realized this has surprised me. 
Understand that he's a baby and you can write his fucking scripts yourself. And that's the worst part about all this shit. It's so predictable and there's nothing under the surface but greed and idiocy. I've heard people tell me how lucky I should feel for having a new satire show while this asshole is president. How it's such a boon for comedy. How the jokes just write themselves. Here's the thing, friends, about jokes that write themselves. If they write themselves, what need have you for a comedy writer? <laughs> if the Pope slipped on a banana peel and his ass fell into a pie, yeah, that's funny. Not going to deny it. But it's also the entire joke. It's not a gift to me as a writer. There's nothing to write. It's self-contained. Pope's ass fell into a pie. Joke over. Nothing to add. We elected the Pope's ass falling into a pie to lead us for four years. I thought I could stop talking about Trump this month, and I was wrong. And what's worse is that I will now never be able to stop talking about him for the rest of my life. His administration is going to devastate this country in ways that will not heal until after I'm dead. And as long as I write new satire, I will have to talk about Donald fucking Trump. I used to think that his new satire was a fun, breezy format for fun comedy, isn't it great? But that was pre-November 2016, when it was easy to be tricked into thinking that the world had rules and that shit was, on the whole, kind of okay. When you could see a racist Twitter egg threatening to kill someone and be like, that guy's an idiot, instead of being like, huh, that guy's an ideological scion of the most powerful political party in American history. Turns out I was the moron all along. <laughs> we had a cool black president who likes the roots. He can tell the joke and sure he murdered a bunch of people with robots. <laughs> and we were like, oh, you, you rascal. <laughs> but hey, he was nice to gay people, so it's fine. But now, oh man, do we ever live in a surreal mirror universe where nothing makes sense and the rules don't matter and I'm uncomfortable all the time and a lot of people are going to get hurt? I'm white. I'm thoroughly unsurprised to see that most of you are. So we're probably going to be safe. But millions of people are not. And that is unacceptable. It's clear now that satire, okay, yeah, yeah. Give me, give me them poetry reading class. Thank you. It's clear now that satire is not a goofy hobby for funsies. It is a fucking sword we carve from the bones of our own severed arm. A cudgel with which we must furiously batter the ankles of the dumbass shit golem that towers over us. This opener isn't very funny, you guys, but it's not, I don't feel like it's time to have happy laughs right now. It's time to fucking fight. Yes. The Democratic Party isn't going to do it. Nope. They're busy blaming other Democrats and being like, hmm, racism got a lot of play this election. Yeah. We need to pivot to that. Yeah. The Democrats don't give a fuck about you. It's going to have to be us. And don't just listen to me saying this and be like, oh, yes, mm -hmm. oh, yes, I agree, I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, take action. Call your representatives and tell them to not do the shit that sucks. Give money, donate to organizations that can and will fight for our rights. There's a jar for ACLU donations on the bar somewhere. You can put some dollars in it. Yeah. Take action right here in the fun show. Playtime is over, you guys. 
It's going to be a long four fucking years. Thank you. That was, that was me hosting. I did the job. Anyway, on to the actual meat of the show itself, our op-ed writers. Our first writer is a uh, comedian who performs regularly throughout the city. She's on, been on this show a bunch of times, been great. Uh, she recently had a one-woman show at the Elgin Friends Festival. Please welcome Elaine Phillips. Thank you. Okay, gonna have to be real text savvy and read off my phone. Great. Uh, yeah, it is a strange time. Uh, Tom brought up uh, white supremacy. <laughs> That's going on back in the zeitgeist. White supremacy. It's a, it is weird seeing footage of Nazis on television in color. <laughs> it's so strange. I, is it like fashion? It's just kind of cyclical, you know? Like back in season, hoods. It's weird. It's confusing to me, though. I don't understand the appeal. Like, I want to... Uh, I try to understand the appeal. Um, try to understand things different than myself. And if, if you listen to people that voted for Trump, the number one reason that they say, the thing that they repeated, it was in the campaign, then they repeated it on exit polls again and again. It's that he tells it like it is. He tells it. Like it is. And, and that always struck me because I'm like, that's not the politician's job. To tell the truth? <laughs> what? No. That's the comedian's job. To tell it like it is. That's what a fucking comic does. The jester tells the truth, not the king. And so, and so I look at comedy, though. And, and, uh, Think about comedians. Did comedians stop telling the truth? Did SNL, you know, make him, make the Republicans likable by just pointing out funny accents and then inviting Sarah Palin and Trump on the show? Did, uh, did Colbert, you know, down, you know, spent months of, like, being dumbfounded that Donald Trump was still in the polls? Like, did that do anything? Seth Meyers literally has a segment called Jokes Seth Cannot Tell. And if you see the segment, it's Seth Meyers in the middle, and then he brings out a black female writer and a white lesbian writer, and they sit on either side of him, and they, they say the jokes. And I just can't help but think, I was like, if the joke has strength, fucking say it. What does it do? I mean, okay, sure, it's more screen time for female comedians. Yay, maybe that'll trickle down. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like you're just taking, parting out your writers and using them like props. Mm -hmm. It seems like that doesn't, oh, we're playing with political correctness. Really? Because it kind of just seems like you're reinforcing identity fucking politics with that stuff. Flip over to Samantha B. See segments, pre-election segments, where she's like talking about the trumpeteers, talking to the trumpeteers in this voice as if that'll make them listen to her. <laughs> that accent. And <laughs> on one hand, sure, through one lens, that is a comedian pointing out the absurdity in the world. But on the other hand, isn't it also 
a New York media liberal elite making fun of somebody in Kansas. And like every joke has a target, but I'm just, I'm like looking at the trajectory. I was like, isn't that kind of like punching down in a way? Make fun of like, make fun of Trump, but like when you're going after his supporters, all it is is someone turns on TV and like, oh, this isn't for me. Like this is for someone else, this isn't for me. Cause I kind of get that. Cause I remember Sarah Silverman standing up, it's burning in my brain, Sarah Silverman standing up at the Democratic National Convention, going off script and saying, uh, to the Bernie or bus people, I just want to say, to the Bernie or bus people, you're being ridiculous. The Democratic Network. I was like, oh, all right, this isn't for me. Y'all got this? Y'all got this shit locked down? I don't need to, what do you need me for? So I get that. The middle of the country, many of them are aware that they're losing the culture war. Like, they get it. And uh, it's particularly with religion. They see it. I mean, it's, you know, people aren't going to church. But also, I, I see plenty of comedians that use anything to do with religion as like an easy, an easy punching, an easy punchline. And I don't know if it's just the contrarian in me that I'm always like seeking the other side, but like I don't, I just, I guess I don't think that organized religion is inherently bad. Like, I don't, I mean, how many soup kitchens are run by the atheist freethinkers of America? <laughs> how many, like, schools overseas are being built by the evangelical non-denominal church of non-believers? They're, they just want to, I don't know. And so, and that is where the appeal of the alt-right usually comes from. It's pointing out liberal hypocrisy someone else has fallen down on the job. When Indian when Indiana bake shops are wrong to refuse to sell gay wedding cakes, and yet a fashion designer refusing to dress Melania, well that's okay. They point out, well isn't that a little bit of hypocrisy? And yeah, and then that's that's what they appeal. That's how they kinda get ears. Oh don't get me wrong, the agenda is racist. The agenda is fucking crazy. <laughs> It's scary. CNN, they, uh, CNN, they uh, had a panel to discuss one of Trump's new hires, Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, Steve Bannon. Uh, right, Steve Bannon's going to be the new Minister of Propaganda. <laughs> Strategy, whatever. Um, I keep getting that wrong. And the panel's talking, and then someone on the panel is saying, like, well, it's wrong to label someone a racist. It is wrong to label somebody a racist. It's irresponsible. That is, that is not okay to label somebody a racist. And I'm like, that tone is so familiar. That is such a familiar tone. I think I've seen that on the left side. I think I've seen that on the liberal side. Where you're telling people what they can and cannot say. We're labeling. Well, labels are wrong. So, well, labeling a racist must also be wrong. Give racists a chance. Racist lives matter. <laughs> it's Orwellian. They are changing the language. The alt right, they're like, we're not racist, we're racialist. Yeah. Like, oh, right, it's not bigot, it's begot. <laughs> Most inflammatory one, of course. The N word. Of course, there's that. 
Still discussing Steve Bannon on CNN's different panel, old white guy reads a quote of Steve Bannon, old white guy guest reads a quote of Steve Bannon, drops the N-word unedited. CNN act, anchor acts like she's been slapped. Because of course, whenever any white person hears the N-word, it causes a, a temporary deafness to context. <laughs> Chastises her desk like that's that's that 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 word is just hateful and I just that it's just I can't believe that you did and then the other the other guest the token black Trump lackey is like thank you yes that word is wrong that's and the white guy's just like I'm reading a direct quote this is the we are more upset about this word than we are about the context this is leading a Virginia school uh, school board to pull Huckleberry Finn and to kill a mockingbird off the shelves as well. Well, that word is all over there. It's a liberal parent that is calling to pull that book off the shelves. Never mind the fact that those books are written specifically to show the horrors of racism, uh, of slavery, to show the injustice of the <coughs> legal system. Never mind the context. No, I, I'm not, I'm not going to like drop the word here. I want you to actually hear what I'm saying. Uh, I didn't mean to bring it up, make us all nervous. <laughs> but when we are dancing around words, if, if there's something that you see the far left agreeing on, that word makes me uncomfortable. Something that the far right is agreeing on. Yes, that's word. Let's, let's remove any discussion. Of that, when you see those sides agreeing, that makes me—that's what makes me uncomfortable, really. Ah, uh, so hell, I mean, shit, cock, cunt, bitch, motherfucker, cunt. Again, I think I would do that. I really like that word. It's very fun. So I always, I always think it's funny when someone gets so mad to call me a bitch because I know that they want to call me a cunt. They're just not that brave. <laughs> but let's let's tell it like it is. It's our job. It really is. And I'm disappointed about Hillary too. You know, I look back. I'm disappointed. I'm shocked, really, because I thought that she knew how to rig an election. <laughs> we all did, right? Didn't she prove herself in the primaries? Yes. And that's the type of jokes that we should have been hearing a lot more. That's all for me. Thanks, guys. One more time for Elaine Phillips. Come on. I, I understand the sort of thought when like, oh, I'm feeling left out, feeling out of the culture. It's time for a change. But... I always like to use the analogy of like if someone's like I'm sick and tired of eating this thin gruel every day, I'd be like, you're right, I hate the thin gruel too. What are we gonna do? And they're like, let's eat this bowl of oven cleaner. <laughs> Not quite. But mm. anyway, next up to the stage to read this op-ed into our great ears is a, uh, a writer and poet and editor, co-founder of the literary magazine and reading series No Assholes. Semi-finalist for the 2016 Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Award. His writing has been in Denver Quarterly, Hobart's Probably Crying Review, 
and so on. And he's also just a delightful guest host for my podcast, You Don't Understand. Please welcome Chris Wright. Um, so I am also going to be reading off my phone. The 21st Woo! century is great. Um, so uh, I'm going to take things in a little bit of a different direction since uh, this whole past month has been super depressing. So uh, this month, as we mourned the rising of a new American president, we also mourned the loss of perhaps America's greatest nemesis we've ever known, Fidel Castro. For those of you unfamiliar with this doctor-turned-revolutionary, here's a brief greatest hits. Castro overthrew the Batista government uh, and kicked uh, U.S. business interests out of Cuba in 1959. Castro brought his version of communism to our Western Hemisphere uh, and almost brought the world to the brink of nuclear war in 1963 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, needless to say, the U.S. government hates him. Uh, Castro has been uh, long been a controversial figure. Uh, while he brought literacy rates and world-class healthcare facilities to Cuba's 11 million citizens, many of whom were left out by the Batista regime, he also forced many people to flee the country and was an enemy of the free press and LGBTQ people for most of his time in power. When he died, Castro was 90 years old, outliving the USSR, many US presidents, the Pokemon Go craze of 2016, uh, and several of the people who wrote and updated his obituaries over the years. However you feel about Fidel Castro, there is one thing that we can certainly admire about Fidel. The motherfucker knew how not to get killed. So, over his 50 plus years in power, Castro survived over 638 assassination attempts by the CIA. And he even joked at one point that if surviving assassination attempts was an Olympic sport, he would win a gold medal. <laughs> so, broken down by president, the number of attempts on Castro's lives are as follows. Eisenhower, 38. Kennedy, 42. Johnson, 72. Nixon, 184. <laughs> Carter. 64. Not bad, Carter. Not bad. Uh, Reagan, 197 attempts on Castro. Presumably he didn't have anything better to do, like stopping AIDS or giving people universal health care, you know. Uh, Bush, 16. Clinton, 21. By then they figured out they probably didn't have a good shot at it. Uh, so, you know, none of them passed reasonable gun control measures in those 50 plus years either, so they had better things to do, like try to overthrow governments. Because if there's one thing that the U.S. loves to do, it's overthrow other people's governments and then deny that they had anything to do with it until it comes and bites them in the ass. So, these 638 assassination attempts were an open secret, much like the U.S.'s interventions in other foreign governments. But now, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, for the first time, I've been able to obtain documents that actually give us the finer details behind some of these assassination attempts. Uh, some of these include logs from CIA agents themselves. Okay. CIA agent log, December 7th, 1960. Agent, at agent attempted to poison Fidel's meal with poison pills, but the ice cream was detected before reaching the target. Failure. January 26, 1961. Agents hired mafia killers to take out Fidel, but the mafiosa ended up extorting the CIA for 10,000 additional dollars before higher-ups rethought the situation. March 3, 1961. Agent used Fidel's well-known love of cigars to attempt to send several cigars of the exploding variety to the Castro compound. Packages were intercepted before reaching Fidel. April 13, 1961. Castro was known throughout Cuba for his love of scuba diving. 
So agents attempted to, one, poison Castro's wetsuit with a lethal bacteria, and two, rig a conch shell at the bottom of the ocean with explosives. Not even kidding. The assassination attempt was stopped because of the Bay of Pigs invasion. February 24th, 1964. An agent laced Fidel's lechon asado with metal shavings. The agent then constructed a wheeled cart with a magnet on the front and a grenade on the back. The idea being that the magnet would be attracted to the metal shavings in Fidel Castro and would pull the explosive towards the target. When the agent pulled the pin out of the grenade, however, the wheel cart split in two, and the magnet continued towards Fidel Castro while the grenade was left by the agent. The agent, who had closed his eyes and plugged his ears at this point, didn't notice and was exploded. <laughs> September 2nd, 1973. The agent was deployed to an area in the mountains of Cuba where Castro had been known to travel. The agent found a dead end on a partially constructed mountain road, then created an elaborate painting depicting a road leading off into the horizon, then placed the canvas at the edge of a cliff in the hopes that the optical illusion would cause Castro to rip through the canvas and then plummet to his death. When Castro headed towards the painting, however, he entered the image and continued down the road. The agent, baffled and enraged, attempted to follow Castro, and at this point he broke through the canvas and plummeted to his own death. March 19th, 1988, the agent set up a catapult standing behind the machine. The agent pulled the ripcord, causing the boulder to fall off the catapult arm, crushing the agent. Failure. March 20th, 1988, agent set up the catapult again, this time standing in front of the machine. The agent pulled the ripcord and the arm released, causing the boulder to flip directly off the arm and fall onto the agent. Failure. March 22nd, 1988, agent set up the catapult again, this time standing on the side of the machine. The agent pulled the ripcord and the boulder flew sideways and landed directly on top of the agent. The agent then begins wondering about the efficacy of granting the Acme Corporation government contracts. March 23rd, 1988, agent, while hiding under the catapult, pulled the tripwire, only to have the catapult collapse on top of the boulder and all. March 24th, 1988, agent, now hiding in a manhole, a safe distance from the catapult. He pulls the wire and nothing happens. The agent crawled out of the manhole carefully. Nothing happens. The agent pulled the ripcord repeatedly. No response. The agent crawled on top of the catapult, kicking and punching the arm. No response. The agent climbs on top of the boulder. No response. Agent repeatedly jumped on the boulder, eventually sending the agent flying through the air to his death. Failure. Now after this last attempt, Castro reportedly pounded his chest raised his fist in the air and let out a revolutionary cry so beautiful it would make even the most stalwart robber baron weep. Meet me? I would translate that phrase for you, but it's like most Spanish poetry, it's much better than the original language. So we'll just leave it at that. Castro, the world's greatest assassination thwarter, uh, if you will. So let's celebrate his life. Oh, Chris Reif, thank you very much. I, for a second there, as you were reading, I'm like, oh my god, he's just gonna like tell real history, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be funny, just cause you know the world's funny, you guys. Uh, not that you, what you did was better. <laughs> anyway, next up to the stage is the writer behind the site Better Myths, 
uh, where myths throughout, throughout many cultures are retold with more swears. Um, he's also the author of the books Zeus Grants Stupid Wishes and George Washington is Cash Money. Please welcome Corey O'Brien. Just kidding, Corey can't be here, it's me again. I'm gonna read his op-ed. Okay, so pretend that I'm Corey, this is his words. Um, he's also a white man, so we look essentially identical. Um, kind of a little less attractive, but you can't hold it against him. So I'm just gonna go ahead and start. Is this, whatever. I fell for 538 later than most other dweebs, but when I fell, I fell hard. It was news that it was backed by hard data instead of soft, supple opinions. It was the exact opposite of a think piece. I read everything Nate Silver and his, and his school for gifted youngsters dumped into my feed. Economics news, tech news, entertainment news. I read news about hockey players. I don't even know how many hockey players are supposed to be on a team. But what enticed me most of all were the politics. Here, finally, was some objective political analysis. While my fellow liberals were busy patting each other on the dicks for their cool opinions, <laughs> my worldview was backed by cold hard facts. I poo-pooed my faint-hearted liberal friends who shivered over the possibility of a Donald Trump nomination, safe in my knowledge that 538 had given him only a measly 2% chance to win the primaries, and then he won the primaries. <laughs> I thought, okay, be cool. Even a model as sophisticated and precise as 538s can't be right all the time. Except, according to Nate Silver in a scarily contrite blog post that went up during the round of post-primary forehead smacking, the uh, sophisticated and precise model was actually uh, just make up numbers that sound right and then I put a percentage symbol next to them which is about the level of statistical rigor I apply when attempting to predict whether I can eat a whole pizza by myself. <laughs> like, yeah, my optimistic prediction may feel accurate at 2 a.m. and I'm possessed by the cheese thirst. <laughs> but if I mistake my stoned prognostications for rigorous scientific data, chances are good I'm gonna bite off more than I can chew. I should have been worried when I saw Nate Silver's apology, but instead I was relieved. Once again, I told myself, data journalism is best journalism. For what other sort of journalist would openly admit that he was so totally irresponsibly wrong in direct violation of all of his principles? I did get a little worried when, two weeks before the election, 538 released an article called, You'll likely be reading one of these five articles the day after the election, a premise about as helpful as a surgeon cutting you open and saying, uh, yeah, okay, so one of these five organs is gonna be your spleen. <laughs> Where was the certainty that I had been promised? Couldn't the options be narrowed down just a little bit more? Hillary Clinton's debate performance had, make, had made Donald Trump look like a sneezing diaper salesman. And the polls were still giving her an 80% chance to win. So why all the uncertainty? Was it possible that 538 was only good at predicting things that everyone was pretty sure were going to happen anyway? <laughs> when Donald Trump won the election on my birthday, Corey's birthday, not my birthday, I was devastated. Not because our country was now on track to being the future that haggard survivors travel back in time to warn the past about. I imagine he was... Corey was actually devastated by that, but uh, 
But because Nate Silver had lied to me, first in the primaries and then in the general goddamn election, he'd given me hope and let reality cruelly yank it away. Data journalism had turned out to be just as big a lie as regular journalism. But worse, because I believed it. <laughs> fuck statistics, I told myself. Fuck pie charts and fuck bar graphs and especially fuck scatter plots. <laughs> Might as well go back to reading BuzzFeed. At least BuzzFeed lies to me openly. <laughs> but I know how much weight my opinions carry with all of you. It would be irresponsible for me to burden you with my incredibly influential opinions without applying some scientific rigor to my own thinking. That same scientific rigor that I thought I'd found in Nate Silver's internet lie crucible. <laughs> Let's look at the facts. Number one, pretty much everybody got this, uh, who wasn't a racist or a snake person got this election <laughs> wrong. We all kind of thought we lived in a country that wouldn't elect a two-paid crime machine to its highest office. It wasn't like 538 was more wrong. Number two. In fact, 538 was actually a little bit less wrong. By election day, they were giving Trump a 30% chance to win, which isn't great odds, but it's better than the odds C-3PO told Han Solo right before Han Solo told C-3PO never to tell him the odds. <laughs> and, I mean, we did end up with one of those five likely stories. And three, 538 does a number of things with data that don't involve predicting the future. In fact, a lot of their best journalism has involved persuasively interpreting past data sets to draw conclusions about the present, like their series in which they uh, tabulated fatalities from gun violence. One of the main reasons 538 even makes predictions, according to Nate Silver himself, is because predictions are falsifiable. That's useful if you're into the scientific method. When a prediction turns out to be wrong, we can use that information to fail forward and uh, hopefully do better next time. It's just that that's a tough sell when you fucking hate failure. So maybe the problem isn't that 538 was wrong. Maybe I just expected them to be too right. I interpreted a 70% chance of Clinton win as a 100% chance. I interpreted a probability as a certainty which is, I guess, exactly the opposite of what 538 is about. But now that God is dead, the only source of certainty we really have is science. What comfort is there in a cold, uncaring universe other than the knowledge that we can predict the ways in which that universe will shit in our hair? It's tempting to believe that if we just feed enough statistics into a machine, it will tell us what to do to make everything okay. I think part of the reason the election forecasts were so intoxicating, at least to me, was that they let me pretend that the election was already over, that we'd already won. It's a dangerous thing to believe when it comes to an election. That kind of thinking can convince us that we don't have any control over what happens in our democracy. That larger social forces move entirely without us. I don't know about you, but nobody ever called me to poll me about the election, and yet New Jays and She's all over confidently reported in the political preferences of white men white, or rather, white people, men, people with too many college degrees, and fucking millennials. <laughs> it's fun that Corey wrote that about himself, and I only have one college degree, but arguably it's too many. <laughs> Ultimately, data isn't a kind of journalism in itself. It's a tool. A tool for the same shitty, biased, inaccurate journalism we've all come to love over the years. 
Another tool of journalism, one that's equally important, is personal narrative. Personal narratives don't give us that statistical certainty of quantitative analysis. Instead, they show us the infinite variability that exists inside any homogenous group. Maybe the best thing that we can do for ourselves in the wake of this horrific election is to try to think of ourselves not as homogenous members of a demographic, but individuals with ties to other individuals. Instead of asking, what are we going to do about this tsunami of hate sweeping across this country, ask, what can I do to make some small improvement today? That's how we're going to get through this. I'm like 90% sure. <laughs> Everybody. Wow. What a cool guy. Moving on to the next op-ed writer. This is a uh, writer and comedian performer. He performs all, all throughout the city, all over the place. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's, he's very great. I saw him in Right Club uh, two times. And they're some of the best Right Clubs that I saw. If you haven't been to Right Club, you can't because it's on hiatus, but you should have because it's good. Uh, he also hosts the podcast This Week in Despair. There are new episodes uh, recently coming out. Please welcome Peter Burns. Or Peter John Burns. Uh, earlier in the show, Elaine spoke uh, rather movingly, uh, eloquently, about uh, the need to make fun of Donald Trump, but not his supporters, uh, suggesting that it was punching down uh, and unworthy of us as comedians. Uh, in that spirit, I would like to offer a rebuttal. Because <laughs> uh, I think we've all had our own various personal forms of mourning and grievance that are still playing out after the election last month. Aside from the general feeling that we will all be live-action role-playing the movie War Games in the not-too-distant future. Or the Road Warrior, if we're lucky. Uh, as an example, I can no longer jerk off to Susan Sarandon. Uh, bringing a sad ending to the longest romantic relationship of my life. <laughs> Admittedly, that relationship was a little one-sided, and arguably a little stalkery, but I'd like to remind everyone that every stalking is a love story from one point of view. <laughs> but the grievance I'd like to address this evening uh, con concerns the reports I've heard from rural America, uh, that much of their grievance uh, was related to the lack of discussion in the news about their plight uh, lack of respect from political candidates, and most importantly, it seems, lack of representation in the popular culture. Uh, the first two I'm going to dismiss quickly. <laughs> from my point of view, and unlike rural Americans, I have statistics to back me up. Uh, the plight of rural America has been, comparatively speaking, one of the most widely reported stories, admittedly often perpetrated by a guilty NPR reporter or CNN millionaire, uh, who wanders through Kansas like a Margaret Mead with fabulous hair. But still, <laughs> compared to stories about poor people in cities who apparently just deserve it, these news stories consist of so much ass-kissing of their disdainful subjects that Chris Christie took notes <laughs> before talking to Donald Trump. And the amount of time that politicians for decades now have kissed rural asses far out of proportion to their numbers is staggering. Every serious candidate for president has to spend months drinking coffee that tastes like pencil shavings in crummy diners all across rural America to show that they care about Iowa. <laughs> and God forbid any candidate order the local shove boiled beef into a roll sandwich with the wrong condiment 
or face three news cycles worth of commentary. A note to America. I don't care if you call it a loose meat sandwich, a cheesesteak, an Italian beef, or a roast beef grinder. It's the same fucking sandwich. You just put different stuff on top. I have never seen a presidential candidate in a deli ordering a pastrami on rye because New York City doesn't need your validation. Also, the Jews run the meat. In 1988, they stuck John Kerry in a fucking plaid hat with ear flaps and sent him into the woods with a rifle like an Exeter-educated Elmer Fudd to prove that he was a man of the people. No one believed this bullshit. But he felt obligated to do it anyway, when actually the only thing that John Kerry ever hunted for in his adult life was a 1994 Bordeaux. And note, incidentally, that this only goes one way. Democrats have traditionally felt the need to engage in hee-haw cosplay every four years. <laughs> but no one on Jeb Bush's team suggests that he should court African-American voters by dressing up in a fubu apparel and hanging out in the projects. <laughs> but it's the lack of representation in pop culture that I would most like to refute. I've just mentioned hee-haw. <laughs> A rural comedy variety show which your grandparents watched after Lawrence Volk was over. And which ran from 1969 to 1992, despite never being funny. Or containing any variety. Now, one could say the same thing for Saturday Night Live. But Trump posted that too. There's no escape is what I'm trying to suggest. And, and compare that to now when we have at least three cable stations devoted to the reality TV escapades of beard minstrel families, truck drivers who can't steer, and Alaskan survivalists. <laughs> Jeff Foxworthy is the host of at least three shows by my reckoning, and his entire career is based on one joke. Larry the Cable Guy doesn't even have a joke. Just a repeated phrase, He's filling stadiums, and I'm here hoping that my cut of the door will cover the Wendy's. I will eat shamefacedly on the way home. So who's really being oppressed here? <laughs> Watch a sporting event. I don't care which one. Every commercial is either a truck ad which celebrates people who refuse to drive on paved roads, an ad for erectile dysfunction drugs targeted at sad middle-aged men who can't get a boner since the factory closed, <laughs> or is narrated by Sam Elliott. Where's my ad? Where's the commercial offering me a deal on the subscription to The Atlantic? <laughs> Rural America complains about sitcoms, saying they're all set in big elitist cities. The location does not matter. The most popular show in America right now is The Big Bang Theory, a show about men with multiple PhDs between them who are completely unable to function socially because book learning is for queers and pussies. <laughs> and who is the most level-headed person on that show? The uneducated waitress. Most popular show in America, and it should be running on a continuous loop in the lobby of Trump Tower. Uh, CBS, that's the network your parents watch. Is an entire network devoted to shows about a dysfunctional human being with book learning who solves crimes and their dumber assistant without whom the smart guy would wander out into traffic. And it was no different in an earlier age. Frasier is a show about two educated queers and their sensible blue collar fathers. <laughs> Friends is a show about five people who hang out in a coffee shop all day, don't appear to have jobs, and don't know any black people. 
stick that show in a diner instead of a coffee shop, and it is a show representing rural America. <laughs> the only difference of the show Friends, if it were set in rural America, is that every season, one cast member would be written out because they had to leave town to look for work. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I made you sad. <laughs> Even prestige dramas on cable cater to the rural voter. For the rural voter, Mad Men is a show that reminds you how much fun it was when you could smoke inside and sexually harass women. Breaking Bad shows you where your meth comes from. And The Wire is a show you watch to reassure you that you've made a good choice to stay in South Dakota. Pop music, leaving country music aside, and let's. Billy Joel, an Italian from the Bronx, felt the need to write Allentown a song that kisses the ass of factory workers whose jobs went away. And by the way, that song came out in 1982, so please, you were warned. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, a Catholic boy from New Jersey, wrote an entire album called Nebraska. And how many songs by Bruce Springsteen, you know, the boss, the number one rock star in America, how many of them are about the nobility of the blue-collar working man? All of them. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen wrote so many songs about the plight of the farmer that one of his albums qualified for federal aid. <laughs> but let's put an end to this nonsense with the example of a single film that stands in for many like it. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams on its initial release was an enormous hit, ran for months in theaters. It is still considered a beloved work today. Let's take a look at it. Kevin Costner is a shitbag farmer in Iowa who was bad at farming. <laughs> Instead of learning how to be a better farmer by, I don't know, taking a course or two, he decides to plow his crops under and make a baseball field out of them because he has daddy issues. <laughs> then, ghost baseball players emerge that only he can see. But let's take note. These are all players from the early decades of the 20th century. Specifically, before baseball was integrated. Jackie Robinson isn't coming out of the corn, is what I'm saying. In fact, the only black person in Field of Dreams involved is James Earl Jones, and they had to go kidnap him in that movie from another state. So there's an awkward conversation that's going to happen about two weeks after the movie ends. The ball players are being portrayed as being the best of America. Even though baseball players in that era were so bigoted that Ty Cobb would slide spikes up if he saw a second base was being played by a WAP. And then, after running his uh, finances into the ground, a magical line of cars appears, stretching as far as the eye can see. And Kevin Costner's ghost dad shows up, and they share a moment at the end. So let's review. <laughs> a shitty businessman makes a series of poor decisions that are forcing him into bankruptcy until a bunch of dummies show up to share in a hallucination of a whites-only America that never existed in the first place, all started by having a shitty dad. Kevin Costner isn't a Trump voter in Field of Dreams. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Costner is Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Everybody. So our, our final op-ed writer of the evening is a writer whose uh, work has been uh, has been published in all sorts of places. I didn't write it down because I didn't have space, but a lot. Uh, her book, Our Perfect Marriage, is on sale right now. Please welcome Claire Linick.
The one thing I asked Tom to do was to mention that I was prom queen 2007. Um, <laughs> here I am doing it by myself, though, so here we are. Yeah. Um, in the spirit of transparency, Tom made it abundantly clear to me that this would be a crowd of fourth through fifth graders and that it would be a fundraiser for their new gym. So, I don't know where the students of Nettleworth are tonight, but we're praying for your safety. I'm just going to go ahead and read what I have because one, I don't have another essay, and two, I am a goddamn professional. Hi, kids. Hi, kids. My name is Claire. What's your name? Uh-oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> What's your name? Good enough, everybody. I have a very fun and silly story to tell you today that has a strong lesson. So everyone turn on their listening ears and we'll get started. The main character of our story today is called Farad Polk. Farad is from the same city as you, Chicago. He went to Chicago's Cook County Jail to go visit his son. When Farad arrived, he was told to proceed through a door. Farad did exactly as he was told. Whoops. <laughs> the door locked behind him and he found himself on a maximum security cell designed for visiting hours for the highest risk prisoners. A room that was not even in use on weekends. Now I know what some of the world fifth graders are thinking in here. <laughs> America will do literally anything to put a black man in jail. <laughs> and you're not wrong! But let's keep going with our story, everybody. How many hours do you think our friend Farad spent in that jail? Let's find out together through math. What's seven times four? 28. That's right. Add four hours to that. 32 hours. Farad was in this cell for 32 hours. Don't feel bad for Farad. There's a really good end to the story, probably. Farad banged on the door and waved wildly at the cameras. However, this room was completely soundproof, and that camera was not in working order. No one knew Farad was in there. Finally, Farad broke a sprinkler in the room and watched it fill with water until the fire department came and found him. This month, Farad was given $600,000 for his emotional distress, which, if he spends it in Chicago, a portion of those taxes will go straight back to the institution that wrongfully locked him in a maximum security cell. End of story, kids. <laughs> now I promised you a lesson, and here it is. Your whole life you've been taught that there are good guys and bad guys. You see it in your books, your shows, and you even play out the idea of recess with cops and robbers, or as we Chicagoans call, cops and aldermen. <laughs> this idea failed Farad. He was a good guy that was wrongfully locked up by other good guys. 
while bad guys sit nearby in the cell, none the wiser of it. This must be very confusing to hear, my friends. Farad did exactly what he was told to do in an emergency. He asked for help, and he tried to get the attention of those around him. He wanted to be seen or heard, but he wasn't. So he resorted to breaking something. Now kids, there aren't good guys and bad guys roaming the earth, there are humans. And we are really fucking shit up 2016 style. <laughs> Sweet children, myself and other adults have failed you. We have promised you a world that doesn't exist. We have promised you there are good guys in charge of everything that will protect you as long as you listen to their directions. There aren't. The system isn't working. The system failed Farad and its family, you. When the system fails you, you have to fail the system. Waving your arms and raising your voice may not be enough. When you are afraid and people are not listening, think of your friend Farad and raise some goddamn hell. <laughs> Drown that motherfucking cell. Oh, good luck with your gym, kids. Well, let me go, everybody. Uh, in my defense, I told you about the fourth and fifth graders uh, to trick you as a joke. So, it, who's who's really the the wronged party here? Arguably, it's me. Let's continue. Uh, so that was that is during the op-ed portion of our evening. We're going to end the show with skewer debates. But before we do that, I just want to have a few reminders. One, uh, we're collecting donations to the ACLU. If you want to uh, fight evil, there's, gonna, there's a lot of evil coming. Uh, there's also this donation bucket for our performers. So, you know, people are entertaining you. You should pay them. Do that. And also, uh, thank you to Cafe Mustache. Great venue. They're the best. You should buy a drink from them. So the skewer debate. Every, every month there's one thing that one person's opinion can't fully encapsulate. You have to hear both sides of the issue, and you, the audience, has to decide who is correct. This month, we're going to be discussing what direction this show, this skewer, needs to take going forward in this increasingly post-satire world. Let's bring up our debatants. Debater. I say debatants every time. It's not a word. Our first debater is a comedian who's performed regularly throughout the city, including uh, this upcoming Monday, December 19th at Zany's. Please welcome Ilana Gordon. Second debater is a uh, writer, performer, and uh, a poet, and all that. She has a currently available chapbook of poems called Emotion, and next month she will have another called Logic. Uh, on January, uh, Sunday, January 8th, she's going to be featuring at the legendary Green Mill Poetry Slam, where she tells me she will be playing live jazz piano, Erica Dreisbach. <laughs> Erica, I have to ask you, is chapbook a fancy word for chapter book? Did you write a chapter book? <laughs> Uh, no, a, a chapbook, as far as I can tell, is a fancy zine. You remember zines? Like 8th grade? 
you'd print them off at the library, 10 cents a copy, and fold them up really. So it's a little bit fancier than that, but that's, it's basically easy. Okay, so the way this debate works, well, I should say what y'all are debating first. That's silly. Okay, what direction should the skewer take in a world that's harder and harder to satirize? Ilana, what point are you going to be debating for? Uh, I am going to be debating that we should continue to espouse our liberal beliefs uh, into our blue uh, echo chamber bubble. Is that right? Yeah. yeah cool. I mean, you, you're arguing oh, yeah. <laughs> Erica, what is your counterpoint? I think we should just make jokes about farting, burritos, and beer. <laughs> Two strong possible directions for the skewer. You might be saying, Tom, are you just are you just trying to offload the job of making the direction of the show? Shut up. No. Anyway, the way this is going to work is that both of our debaters are going to have about three minutes to read their opening statements. Then they're going to have uh, to answer questions that I wrote for them that they've never seen before, make up answers on the fly. They will then get three more minutes to make closing statements, and you will decide the victor. Ilana, why don't you start us off? So tomorrow marks the one-month anniversary of the 2016 election, or as it will be referred to in future history books, the days uh, Americans shot ourselves in the dicks just to see what would happen. <laughs> A lot has transpired since the election, uh, specifically on Twitter. Since November 8th, Donald Trump has tweeted twice about Saturday Night Live. He's tweeted about CNN six times, the New York Times 10 times, and hit Broadway musical Hamilton three times. In the one month since the election, Donald Trump has tweeted over 100 times, and 21% of his tweets are about the media. For the sake of contrast, Donald Trump has tweeted precisely zero times about the nearly 900 hate crimes that occurred in the 10 days following his election, but like, whatever, you know? <laughs> this is, as Donald, or President-elect Trump would say, a problem of bigly proportions. It is very clear that Donald Trump has no idea how to run a country, but he can manipulate the media with both of his tiny hands tied behind his back. The media cashed in on Trump during his candidacy in a big way, trading away credibility for click-through rates. And now that he's president, Trump is doing everything he can to discredit them. One of the major tenets of a, uh, of a fascist government is a controlled mass media. Donald Trump is already attempting to suppress information, whether that means punishing specific media outlets by blacklisting them, casually uh, ditching his press pool, or singling out NBC for showing pictures of him with a double chin, or as he calls it, a totally normal, very amazing chin. <laughs> when Putin came to power in 2000, one of his first acts was to take over a popular political satire show uh, that mocked him, and the show was called Cuckley or Puppets, and after the, show's network, after the show's network refused to comply with Putin's demands, the network slowly fell under government control. And it is troublingly easy to envision a scenario in which Donald Trump might attempt a similar coup. This is why I firmly believe that as comics, it is our duty to continue parroting our bland, liberal opinions into our blue bubble echo chamber. Believe me, nothing would make me happier than going to a comedy show and not hearing some young, bright-eyed comic whip out their hot take on Donald Trump's approach to immigration reform. However, as shitty and homogenous as these jokes are, we desperately need to continue making them. Uh, Donald Trump's behavior and the behavior of his proposed cabinet is not normal. 
And the second we stop talking about it is the second we allow his administration to control their own narrative. Donald Trump's ascendancy proves that we are living in an alternate reality, one where Breitbart News carries as much weight as the Washington Post. And in this post-truth, post-fact, stranger things, upside-down world we live in, it is up to artists, comics, and activists to speak truth to power and to continue to hold our government accountable through our hacky jokes and half-baked premises. <laughs> On its surface, this might seem like just another liberal circle jerk, uh, but if at least one person comes at the end of it, then all is not lost. <laughs> jerking each other off and bottle up our feelings that we risk disaster. How should Chicago's favorite live lit and news review show, The Skewer, tackle the coming months? I say we avoid politics entirely and instead make jokes about farting, burritos, and beer. We wouldn't even have to lose the news format. Why? Just a few weeks ago, the Huffington Post reported that a woman in Tokyo farted during surgery. Ha! Yes. <laughs> Causing a robotic laser operating on her cervix to burst into flames, severely burning much of her body. Why aren't you laughing? <laughs> farting is funny! I think right now you feel like Alice at the um, at the tea party. I need you to feel a little more like the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. Like, let's bring on the weird tea! You know, we couldn't get political here, but why? There's no point in screeching about the system or fighting back. Everybody knows that the hippies of the 60s and the 70s never accomplished anything. Don't check on that. Everybody already knows that. Hey, come to think, let's make jokes about how ineffectual, ineffectual hippies are. Hippies are lazy and they smoke pot. Ha! That Che Guevara poster, that's just a cool thing to have in college. Che Guevara was a hippie too, right? Maybe, who knows, who can say? Che Guevara, young lady, name one thing he did. See, he didn't do anything. <laughs> I propose that we squander this opportunity at the skewer, which brings together people with the willpower and energy to leave the comforts of our home on a Wednesday night and engage. Let's let that opportunity float down the river on an inner tube with a margarita in one hand and the sun on its face. Let's be exactly the Snapchat selfie selfish generation they say we are. Let's not use the skewer to, I don't, I don't know, this is just off the top of my head, uh, create an op-ed voicemail segment where we leave short op-eds on the actual voicemails of Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, the Justice Department, the White House Situation Room, Victor, the Rahm Emanuel, the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, like the Jerky Boys, but if they were woke. It would be um, a form of entertainment, but also performance art, but also real direct action that we would do here in this room together, uh, as fun and as revolutionary as that would be. Let's not do that. <laughs> Let us refashion the skewer, not to skewer, but to gloriously detach and tell jokes about farting, burritos, and beer. Strong arguments from both parties, although Eric, I will have to say that Chicago's favorite new satire show is The Paper Machete. <laughs> it's just inarguably it, it better than this show. Uh, however, 
That was the question and answer segment of the, of the program. Before I get into my prepared questions, do either of you wish to rebut the other, just in general? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I just want to address the point about circle jerking. We can still do that, guys. <laughs> Alana, I'm going to field the first question your way. So after this election, there's a lot of people who are really angry or really, really passionate. They're going to be tempted in this climate to have bold and exciting opinions that are going to be interesting to listen to. What can we do to tamp down that urge and ensure that we only have the most bland pandering that we've heard many times before? Yeah, Tom, I think that's a great question. Uh, and I think the easiest way to do that is to make sure that everybody continues to get their news on Facebook. Yeah, because that way we're all pulling from the same one Atlantic article, uh, and we can just keep re-quoting that uh, ad nauseum. Uh, you know, throw in one Slate article if you're feeling crazy, uh, maybe like one very artfully written HuffPo article, and I think we're golden. I think that, those three sources only, and only if they're re-shared from a Facebook feed. I think that will solve it. Erica, you, you purport to, to wish to ignore politics. What is the plan then for when the Trump Stapo has disappeared so many of our audience members that it's no longer possible to ignore it? Okay, so th this is really key. I thought about this a lot. You really need to clap twice as hard. Um, and actually, we can just provide other people with special extra clappers, like so that you can attach to your hands that makes a second clap. So it'll sound like just as many people. Because it's important to have a good audience that's really paying attention. And uh, you know, um, you can also get some kind of amplification for your larynx. So it'll sound twice as loud. So we'll still get the feeling in the room. And that's what's important. Well said. Well said. Alana, if we're going to stick with bland liberal pandering, what are we going to do to distinguish ourselves from literally every other political comedy show? I would say snacks. Uh, <laughs> just as like a blanket thing, just a lot of snacks, uh, specifically cheese, American, uh, but like also cheese from other places, uh, so we show inclusivity amongst the cheeses. Uh, but mainly snacks. Erica, do you see any possible crossover where maybe the cheese could go on a burrito? Oh, absolutely. Took the words right out of my mouth, Tom. That would be such a delicious solution to the problem. See, everything that could happen in the bland liberal show could also happen in burrito show. <laughs> so there's no need to choose, guys. Take the best of both worlds, mostly my world, and then the best of the other world, and it's completely compatible. So I had just a brainstorm that I wanted to know your opinion on. So we've talked a lot about echo chambers as like a metaphorical thing where everyone has the same opinion as you. What do you think about uh, staging the show literally in an echo chamber, like a room where things reverberate for minutes? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting idea, uh, but as a liberal, uh, speaking into an echo chamber right now, I think the best thing about the way we have the show set up is that uh, I can only hear my voice and then after the show, I get to hear all the people who validate my choices. Yeah. 
just don't know if an echo chamber would have the same effect. Like, if I'm talking and I'm hearing everybody else's opinion, that just doesn't do it for me sexually the same way, so. Yo, I think we all can relate to that. Yes. <laughs> Erica, political, the political landscape this year already was full of hack jokes. There was a guy named Wiener who ruined the election with his debt. How can we ensure that our non-political jokes are even more hacky than the political reality? Mm, that's a great question. Well, the good part is that a lot of these so-called political figures are really just like bumbling idiots and they have a, uh, a life in the private sector. So Wiener's dick ended up on Twitter. That's in the private I'm just, uh, you know, hmm. <laughs> no, I'm just talking now. Words are coming out of my mouth. I don't know exactly. There's just so much crossover between um, the politics and bullshit. It's like you're trying to find the best possible inane bullshit, but the best possible inane bullshit is politics. So um, it's going to require a creative approach and uh, probably a research team. Some hard-hitting answers from both parties. I'm going to ask one last question. I want both of you to answer it. Uh, whenever you're ready, this speech is to approach. The question is, honestly, why even bother with a live show in this day and age when the internet has infinite amounts of listicles of little kittens that entertain people far more efficiently? You know, Tom, I've been meaning to bring that up, actually. Because uh, I would prefer it if I could just literally phone this show in. Uh, from the comfort of my home. And I don't think it's, uh, it's something that's not mutually exclusive. I think we can do that. I think it's very easy uh, to parrot your liberal opinion from anywhere. Uh, you can do it from the toilet if you have a smartphone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm open to the idea of uh, cutting back on some of the excess and just really nailing down to the very, very boring opinions that we all share. No joke, like not joking, it's all fun and games until the internet goes down or until Twitter starts getting heavily monitored or until your email starts getting heavily monitored and not for words like president and bomb, but just for words like Donald Trump sucks and suddenly you're getting IRS audited. So it's gonna be coming together in real spaces um, to talk about burritos as a metaphor for taking a shit in front of Trump, Trump Tower or um, uh, <laughs> Farting as a metaphor for organizing a, a march in Washington, but coming together in real space is actually going to be real important. A lot of our assumptions about how we're going to be able to communicate with each other, those assumptions are not going to stay true for much longer. He's going to be at muscular. He's going to be at prism. He's going to be. He's going to. So we have to keep. We have to keep coming together in real space because he can't monitor this. I like, I like the part where you told people to come to the skewer. <laughs> that concludes the question and answer segment of the show. It's time for closing arguments. Uh, Alana, you went first last time, so why don't you go first this time? I don't know. <laughs> Look, you guys, I get it, okay? Uh, doing comedy right now feels really weird and self-indulgent and unproductive. Uh, especially this show, right? <laughs> <laughs> Like we're sitting in the cafe.
Cafe Mustache, which is maybe the most hipster, pretentious, elitist name I've ever heard. <laughs> like when I imagine alt-right sitting around making fun of liberal cucks like us, I imagine that they're picturing us in this exact location. <laughs> so we're like playing into their hands a little bit. Uh, but performing and engaging in comedy right now feels a little gratuitous, uh, especially political comedy. And especially when you compare it to the very active ways that people are stepping up to help. And uh, I think Tom mentioned earlier there was an ACLU bucket going yeah. around for donations. Uh, if you're feeling guilty about being at a comedy show instead of calling your legislators, like maybe throw a couple bucks in there and assuage your guilt that way. I don't know. Uh, but comedy, like activism and art, is going to make America livable over the next four years. And with any luck, political satire will continue to be used to hold our government accountable and defend the more vulnerable populations of our country. Uh, comedy, when wielded correctly, can be a weapon, and political comedy even more so, uh, which is why I have taken it upon myself to help arm the masses. Uh, here is a handy reference of some of the ways you can assert your political power through comedy. Here we go, uh, dick jokes. And it, here's an example. Uh, Donald Trump's dick is so small, uh, but it's still bigger than his heart. Fart <laughs> 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 yeah. jokes. Donald Trump's farts smell so bad they could start a nuclear war. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that should just read Donald Trump can start a nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> Yo mama jokes. Uh, Yo mama is just like Donald Trump in that she has no political experience. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, observational comedy. Hey, you know what I noticed is that that Donald Trump guy doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for women and minorities. <laughs> Improvisational comedy. Have you guys noticed that he seems to be making this stuff up as he goes along? Okay. <laughs> Wit wordplay. Uh, I feel like Hillary Clinton really nailed it with this one, with the trumped up trickle down economics, so I'm just gonna let her have that one. She deserves it, okay. <laughs> Surreal comedy. Uh, for that, I'm just going to submit the entire calendar year of 2016 for your consideration. Uh, and physical comedy. <laughs> that was my impression of Donald Trump listening to Al Gore talk about climate change. Yeah. And lastly, prop comedy. <laughs> In the face of a super intense reality, this debate asks us to choose between two ways of wussing out. I say, if we must abdicate responsibility, let's enjoy ourselves. Let there be easy and comfortable comedy in our surrender. Let us feast from the low-hanging humor fruit, like dick jokes and videos of confused puppies running into things. Mmm. Yum. <laughs> Staying informed right now is nightmarish. Why would we bring that on ourselves? And also, just being real, it's probably not going to get that bad, right? It hasn't gotten bad before, so it just, it just probably won't. I mean, uh, if it were going to get bad, the Republicans would stand up to him. And if the Republicans didn't stand up to him, I mean, that's what the Democrats are for. Don't worry, if it gets bad, someone else will stand up to him. Someone else will do the work. We don't have to do any work. We can just chillax. Think of all the politically unaware people just chilling all day long, not reading any news at all, mainlining heroin, etc., 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 and they're fine. We could be fine too. 
Also, just hypothetically, if we did try to do something, we might fail. Or people might call us shrill libtards. And doesn't that sound super stressful? <laughs> Instead, we can cover cute, heartwarming, gross, wacky news. Why, just this week, Canadian police apologized for threatening drunk drivers with Nickelback. We figure if you're foolish enough to get behind the wheel after drinking, then a little Chad Kroger and the boys is a perfect gift for you. <laughs> the police chief of Kensington, Prince Edward Island said, that's a pretty fun story. I bet you didn't read about that on your shrill and aggravating Twitter and or Facebook feeds. By no means should we gather at the skewer to tell jokes at the expense of the establishment and trade tips for resistance, like, hmm, for instance, Trump Tower is a five or ten minute walk from the Lake L stops, and there's that super Walgreens at State and Lake, and you can pick up chalk or a giant black Sharpie for a couple bucks retail, and then you can let your imagination run wild from there. Instead, Let's enjoy comfortable escapism before the mandatory red hats, the undrinkable tap water, 20% unemployment. Soon enough, making jokes about Supreme Ultimate Commander Trump will be a criminal offense. So let's practice making safe jokes now. And let us not preach to the choir. Let us not add to the tsunami of liberal tears. The powers that be don't care what we say here. I mean, not unless we make them care. And as fun as it would be for me to make them care, I would really love to make them care. I would love for you to see me make them care. I would love for you to find out what I mean by that when I say I would make them care. Let's just use our time here to make jokes about farting, burritos, and beer. All right, all you cucks. It's time to decide. We're all liberal shills in this room. So we gotta decide which of these two opinions, hard fought both of them, will become the fact of the skewer's future. And I'm not joking when I say that. I'm joking when I say that. Um, and by winning, they will win the least coveted prize in Chicago Live Wit, the skewer! A prize that many winners have said, Tom, don't give this to me, I don't want it. But it's still here. So the way it's going to work is I'm going to say, you think this person went, this person went. You clap. You clap louder for the person you think won. And I think it's going to be you. Who decides who the crowd clap louder for. Your opinion is meaningless. You, have you been to Right Club? You know how it goes. Anyway, so let's just go ahead and do it. Who believes that Ilana's uh, idea of pairing the same liberal opinions in the echo chamber is the correct move? Very good. Who believes that Erica's idea of just telling, telling dick and fart jokes is the right idea? <laughs> Judge, who is the victor? I'm hard of hearing. <laughs> Yeah, that's something I probably should have should have known about before. Um, um, gosh, I love them both, but I, and I and I really clapped equally hard myself. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I think the uh, the the beer and burritos kind of 
there. Eric, you try to try Thank both Ilana and Erica for being fantastic And with that, the skewer is over, my friends. We're back next month, the first Wednesday of the month, and we'll continue to until it is illegal. Uh, <laughs> and also, we record the shows, put them out in podcast form if you want to check out uh, ones from the past. Or if you want to hear them in the future but don't want to come out here, I, I wouldn't come here if I weren't hosting it. It's hard as cold out there. Um, and also, as we said before, there are ACLU donations and donations for our writers. So if you have a couple bucks, just give them to a good cause. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks to all our writers. And yeah, I'm done. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you like what you heard, uh, you could subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, really anywhere that you get a podcast. If you're listening to this, you've already heard it, so you know how. Um, you can also leave us a review on iTunes. That would be super nice. Um, you can also email us at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Uh, you know, if you wanted to come to a live show, we are at Cafe Mustache in Chicago every first Wednesday of the month. Our next show is going to be Wednesday, January 4th. Uh, and, you know, just thanks for listening. It's been real. See you next time at the Skewer. <laughs>